Welcome to Dear Runner Bod, the pod dedicated to helping you embrace your runner's body. I'm Serena Moriardi, a registered dietitian and body image coach who wants you to stop dieting and start fueling the athlete within. While I am a medical professional, the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not meant to diagnose, treat, or cure. Now, let's start rewriting your body's story. This week review of the week is by Barb Eyes Nat. And just a reminder, if you're wondering what the heck is the review of the week, when you leave Dear Runner Bod a review on Apple Podcast, you will get entered into a lifetime lottery for a chance to win a free masterclass by me. This is over $100 value, and you can choose from either Race to the Kitchen meal prep masterclass or the Runner Girl Bad Body Image Detox Masterclass. And all you have to do is leave a review. You leave a review, you will get selected at random to win a masterclass. If you hear your review read, on the podcast. You just send me a DM or an email and I will then give you the choice to choose whichever prize you prefer. So Barb Eisnett, you are this week's winner. And what did Barb have to say? She said, non-PR goals. What a great listen today with Serena's guest, Amanda Brooks. It was a good reminder of how important non-PR goals are. In 44 years of running, I have mostly run for me and my fellowship with my running buddies. I have time with goals, times with no goals, and even time without running at all. Running what I love. Thank you, Serena, for your podcast full of great insights. You are so welcome, Barb. Make sure you reach out and get your prize. I am really excited for today's episode of Dear Runner Bod because I am interviewing Elizabeth Clore. Elizabeth Clore is a runner, a writer, and a marketer. She is the author of the book Boston Bound, and she has run 32 marathons, including four Boston marathons. And when she's not running or working, she enjoys traveling with her husband. And her Instagram account has been one of my most favorite Instagrams to follow. As a fellow recovering perfectionist, Elizabeth is incredibly inspiring. And I have a feeling a lot of you are going to be nodding along and relating to her journey in a big way when you listen to today's pod. Welcome to another episode of Dear Runner Bod. I am thrilled right now because we have Elizabeth Clore with us who is going to be sharing so much insight into what it means to be a runner. And it may be like a little bit of a different way of thinking about running than maybe the traditional way of thinking about identifying as a runner. Elizabeth, do you mind just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and your story? Sure, absolutely. So I'm Elizabeth Clore. I have been running for a very long time, um, since around 2001, when I discovered the joys of the treadmill. (laughs) I've been uh, racing since 2005, when I discovered the real joy of running outside and actually being in a race and trying to improve my times and actually training. Um, So by this point, I think I've run 32 marathons, So about two per year, run the Boston Marathon four times, and really 
love running and love blogging. I've had my blog since 2006. I've had my Instagram um, since 2016. I have a book. So running and then writing about running, (laughs) my two passions. Yeah. And I think like, um, so I am reading Elizabeth's book right now. I'm almost to the end, Boston Bound, A Seven-Year Journey to Overcoming Mental Barriers. And this book is so refreshing. I literally, as I'm reading it, Elizabeth, I have all these clients that I'm like, I'm Amazoning this to them. <laughs> like they need to read this book. <laughs> like literally, you were like in the head of my former self and so many of my clients. So, you know, we kind of just like you just breezed over, like, oh, I run Boston four times. But I mean, there was quite the journey getting to Boston from what I gather from your book. Yes, it was not easy. So when I ran my first marathon in 2006, my time was four hours and 46 minutes. So I I knew of the Boston Marathon and I just thought, oh, that's that's for fast people. I'm very beginner runner. That's not for me. Um, And then I just I love the marathon. So I kept running them. And then I got my times down like 424, I think, for marathon number two and then chipping away until ultimately I got down to 351. And I was like, well, hey, isn't isn't the BQ time for uh, my age 340? Now, keep in mind, this was like back in 2008. So 340 was for the younger gals. And uh, all of a sudden it was like only 11 minutes away. So I'm like, hey, why don't I try to do this? And as soon as I started trying and set that goal, um, things actually went in the complete opposite direction. <laughs> I, instead of, you know, getting faster and setting PRs at all my races and getting that marathon time down more, I started to get really anxious and nervous because I had set this big goal for myself. And even though I was becoming more and more fit, my training was uh, becoming more heavy and I was able to run much faster times in training, come race day, there was this huge, huge pressure to perform to the level that I expected based on my training plan and my training results. So I'd show up at the start line thinking, well, I know I should be able to BQ. I have all of these workouts and these tune-up races behind me. But there was just this overarching just sort of anxiety about it. And it would just cause my heart rate to spike. And then I would start to bonk at like mile eight, nine, 10. I would just completely fall apart. And then I'd have to run, walk it in. There were a few times when I just didn't finish. And um, there was it was really hard to get over that because you have months and months of training, hours, hours every week. And then you get to the race and you just blow it because you're so wound up and you don't sleep properly and you're not in that right state of mind. And and it really showed me that I do not have the mental piece of this. I just don't. And I need to get that. Yeah. And it's like hard not to take it personally when, you know, putting training in BQ for any marathon, even if it's not a BQ, like a marathon is a pretty all-consuming task. And I think in our community of runners, sometimes it's almost minimized. It's like, oh yeah, everybody runs a marathon, like no big deal. (laughs) But actually it's like an incredible feat just running that marathon and then going for that BQ goal is, is incredibly, it's time consuming. It's, it's all consuming and it's very understandable how it can feel like this, like personal, I mean, failure almost when, when you're missing it repeatedly. So, so it seems like Elizabeth 
this kind of opened a can of worms for you where this process kind of made you realize like all of your own struggles with your um, your relationship with anxiety, your relationship with um, being a goal-oriented perfectionistic type, which I think a lot of runners can like are raising their hand. They're like, that's me. So, so like how – how did you change your identity story? You know, I think for this, this podcast really focuses a lot on body image. And so for a lot of runners, that body image component is tied up in looking like a runner, quote unquote, and how there's a very specific way to be a runner. And I'm seeing that in your story where it's like part of being a runner was um, this, this belief that you had to be running this like BQ time to be a quote unquote this, we're not saying this is true. It's just like how you were functioning at that time. How did you separate your identity? Like, how did you do that? Because that's hard work. It, it was very hard. I saw it as kind of like the haves and the have nots. Either you're a BQ or you, you didn't BQ. I saw it as black and white, very polarizing. And that was a representation of how I would see most things in life all or nothing, uh, very binary, no shades of gray, no middle ground, didn't really take any pride in the process. It was, I was doing all of this training. And the most important thing was that on one day, I get that clock to say a certain time. And that was how I looked at it, because that was object, that was objective. That wasn't, um, there were no shades of gray there, I, I would have definitely succeeded. So how I went about changing that was, um, I went to actually work with a sports psychologist because I was able to identify in myself that my thought patterns were not helpful, that I knew I was having anxiety. I knew I wasn't having a really healthy relationship with running, but I wasn't able to turn it around on my own. So that's when I sought the help of a sports psychologist. Now, going back previously, had I ever been in therapy before? Yes, I'd seen two therapists in the past, and neither of them helped me in any way, shape, or form. Um, I had struggled with an eating disorder in my early to mid-20s, so I went to therapy for that, and this person did not help me at all. Um, and then I was struggling again. Um, even when I started running like around 2006, 2007 timeframe, person didn't help me at all. So working with a sports psychologist, I think... Um, was wonderful because there was something tangible to apply. And the person that I worked with wasn't all about, let's dig into your childhood or let's talk about your relationship with your mother, your father. It wasn't like that. It was, all right, you're going to go on a run and let's talk about how you feel about the run or what, what was your focus. So he gave me homework and he gave me very tangible things to do and ways to program my mind um, so he was essentially reprogramming my thoughts. And it was basically like when that happens, it's not they're not your thoughts. What you're doing is you're you're saying, okay, this these are the thoughts that I need to be having. And it's like you just fake it until you make it. So for I want to say about a year and a half, I was just faking it until I make it. Like I would acknowledge my true feelings, but then I would always say, okay, these are my true feelings. This is how I should be looking at it. And I would just work really hard and I would very much intellectualize it. But over time, after so much intellectualizing it and faking it, I had this one breakthrough epiphany where the first time I could feel like I actually felt what he meant. Um, it wasn't just intellectual, it was a feeling. And then I grasped hold onto that and I just 
sort of developed on top of that. And once I had that one feeling and that one sensation, it went. And to be a little bit more specific about that defining moment was in, I think, 2013, I was registered for the Chicago Marathon. And I had been injured for most of the summer. I had to take six weeks off of running. And then I was able to return. And the question was whether or not I was going to run Chicago. I knew I had enough time to train and be able to finish. But the likelihood of me setting a PR or qualifying for Boston was very, very low. Um, And at that point, I was really into qualifying for Boston. But I've been working with the sports psychologist now for about a year and a half. And I was just having this conversation with myself. Well, do I run it and have a a crappy time or do I just wait and not run it? And then all of a sudden I realized, well, wait a minute, this is the Chicago Marathon. This is huge. I've never done this race. I wanted to run it for a really long time. Why would I rob myself of the experience of Chicago just because I was ashamed of what the clock said? Doesn't that seem like I'm actually cheating myself? And I'm like, yeah, it does. Like I could just go there and just run it whatever time it is. I could have so much fun and have a great experience and I could just not care about the time and I could just not care about what other people think. And it's just like this huge weight just was lifted off of me. So magical. And I also really love that it was related to Chicago Marathon because I would definitely say that's my favorite course. Like I love that race. But like what I'm hearing here is – Like I'm assuming it was a lot of like mental focus and constant work for a year and a half to be kind of saying like, okay, I'm identifying this thought. It's not serving me. What would my sports psychologist say? Let me replace that thought. Like I'm assuming that took a lot of work and focus. Yes. And I I went to see him every week and he had me do homework and I'd have to reflect on runs. And he said, whenever you do a run, after your run, go through this thought process. What went well? What didn't go well? And what did I learn? And it was kind of like coming back from an easy five miler. It's like, okay, I run this every day. It was sort of um, repetitive to keep going through it. But I did. And I was always able to pick out what went well, what didn't go well, what did I learn? And it just helped me see everything through a much more positive lens. So when I didn't run what I thought was a good race, it forced me to pick out what were the positive things of this race, even if I didn't get my goal time. What did I do really, really well in this race? Yeah. And Um, I think the reason like I love that we're having this conversation is when it comes to like changing mindset, like changing your feelings about yourself when you look in the mirror, if you're working on body image, like changing how you see yourself as a runner, if you are frustrated that you're not PRing or BQing or what have you, it's about realizing it's in the repetition. It's in doing the hard work and doing like repeating the motion. And I always find it so kind of ironic in that as athletes, like our whole life is about hard work. Like we're all obsessed with like doing the same monotonous five mile run over and over again. We're all obsessed with like going out there and like pushing ourselves on the track. And then when it comes to this, this less tangible, like practice the thoughts over and over and over again, wait for those aha moments to seep in, see how it changes your life. We're so quick to give up on ourselves. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's not and that's not easy. And one thing that my uh, sports psychologist said was that the the biggest gains you'll make in running are actually the mental gains. 
And those will carry through to other areas of your life. And I do believe that with my 20 plus years of running, what I've gotten out of it isn't just that I can run like a sub 320 marathon. I mean, that's great. But what I've really gotten out of it is everything that I've learned in terms of how to truly value myself, where to find confidence, how to enjoy the journey, enjoy the process, and really just relax. I was always a very uptight type A person, probably wasn't very likable. <laughs> um, now I feel like I'm just a different person on the inside. That's what actually inspired me to write the book. Like I felt like I had this personality transformation and all of a sudden I had this sense of humor that I didn't used to have. And I would find myself often making light of things and making jokes of things. What I used to take everything so seriously. I, uh, that is just so magical. And, you know, I keep bringing this back to body image because this, this story really just, it has like such serious parallels here, but when you were all consumed and hating your body, disliking your body, not seeing yourself as an athlete, it's a downer, right? And part of finding food freedom and giving yourself permission to eat and giving yourself permission to feel like an athlete and to see yourself as an athlete when you look in the mirror, even if you don't have that professional runner physique, is that you are allowing yourself the experience of like enjoying your life. And like Elizabeth, that's literally what I'm hearing is like, I used to be really down in the dumps all the time because I wasn't BQing. And now here I am like laughing at things. My personality is opening up and like, just like doors have opened up for you simply by just like letting yourself like experience life rather than being with a number. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when you're just in that mindset of you are, you have a one track mind, everything I do is around this goal of qualifying for Boston or similar to if you have an eating disorder, everything in my life revolves around food or how many calories or what am I going to eat? And when you just make that one goal uh, a focus or whether it's getting your body a certain way, you have a one track mind and you miss out on so many other things when when you limit yourself like that. And you really are only robbing yourself. And I, I couldn't see that. I, I saw it as, no, I'm just working really, really hard. I want this so badly. I'll do whatever it takes. I didn't realize that that line of thinking was actually hurting. It wasn't helping. Yeah. And I, I love, so I love that we keep kind of talking about this black and white thinking, right? Where it's like, there's no gray area or bad. I'm a good runner. I'm a bad runner. And we kind of like quickly breezed over your relationship with your eating disorder. And um, having struggled with an eating disorder myself, knowing that a lot of my clients and people who have listened or listening to this podcast are maybe currently struggling or have struggled. I think it's really for us to talk about how like the commonality here is this urge to control things, right? Like to always wanting to be the one in control. And in your book, Boston Bound, you kind of described how you bounced from that eating disorder where you were controlling your weight to then becoming really um, focused and obsessive about controlling your your time you were running. And um, it kind of just seems like the secret and easier said than done is really just like finding peace in that that gray area and finding peace with like kind of like accepting that certain things are the way they are and that we can't control them. But like I guess if there is somebody right now struggling with that desire to be in control um, and I know we've like just gave like a bunch of really helpful tips like is there like another like a starting place that you would give them to like start with? Well, the reality of life is that you're just not in control. 
And I think just accepting that, that's the first step is being able to know what you can and cannot control. So in racing, the big thing there is the weather on race day that can really make or break your race. You have no control over it. So spending time worrying about it, spending time after the race th thinking, oh, I'm so unlucky or that was just so bad, doesn't, um, doesn't go, go anywhere, doesn't get you anywhere. You don't control it. And I think the reason why I really liked control is that when I started developing my eating disorder in my early 20s was I felt that everything that I wanted was out of my control. So like if I wanted to, I was in my early 20s looking for a romantic relationship and I felt, well, that's not really, that's not in my control. It's just who I meet or where I am or am I going to meet someone or not? I can't control that. I didn't like that. Um, and then I was also early in my professional career. And am I going to get a good job? Am I going to find something? And that's sort of really not in my control at all. Someone else has to give me the job. And then in college, am I going to get an A? And on these essays, I was an English major. Well, someone else has to say you get an A. So everything that I had always wanted being a goal-oriented person, it was not in my control. Someone else had to come along and like say, yes, you get an A. Or yes, I want to be in a relationship with you. Or yes, you get the job. With eating, it was the one thing where there was no one else that was going to come up and, and validate me. I could validate myself for the very first time. And I loved it so much that I just fell right into an eating disorder because, oh, eat less um, and then I will lose weight and I will can be able to control my weight and I will get my reward without anyone's help. And it gave me this sense of independence that I had never felt. And um I think that I had to go through that eating disorder process in order to truly develop because I had never felt feelings of being independent or like being empowered. My eating disorder actually made me feel empowered, even though it was a false sense of empowerment. Um, so learning to let go of that was extremely difficult. And that's why it's so difficult to recover from an eating disorder is because you're able to have this illusion of being an empowered and control and um, you don't want to go back to the way you felt before. So for me, and this was a very long road, learning that like it's okay um, to not be in control and that the reality is you're not in control. But more importantly is that I don't need someone else to validate me because I'm not going to find my worth. If I get an A on an essay in college, that doesn't find my worth. If I'm in a romantic relationship, it doesn't define my worth. If I get a job, it doesn't define my worth. I shouldn't be allowing these outside external people to be telling me if I'm valuable, I do that. And until I learned to do that, I was not free of this need for control. Yes, like mic drop, absolutely. It's that like constant, exhausting search for external validation and how when you get that external validation, it's never enough. Like, I don't know about you, but there have been so many times I set a goal, I achieve it, and I don't even like smile. I'm just like, okay, what's the next goal, right? Like, I'm not even there to like, to celebrate myself because it's never enough. And it's, it was really like, I, I, I think that we're kind of like, just keep kind of, um, this story of you is, is so powerful because we have the end and obviously we're always evolving. It's not the end, but like we see here that, that, that year and a half, that, that evolution from eating disorder to PR obsession to a year and a half of reprogramming your brain. Like it wasn't easy. It wasn't automatic. Um, it required a lot of work and yet you, you stuck with it and you're an athlete. So we know you can do hard things and you got to this place where 
Of course, we like external validation, but like it's not the end all be all anymore for you. And that is so powerful, Elizabeth. Yes. And I do think that's key to letting go of, of control is because you actually do control more than you think. The reality is you don't control a lot of things, but then take a step back and realize what you do control and what you can control. And that's how you feel about yourself. No one can take that from you. And, and despite how it may feel and if someone is not treating you well or, or whatever's going on in your life is making you feel badly about yourself, it's, it's really you. It's coming from you and learning how to um, temper those emotions and to feel confident, and to feel your self-worth. Truly, that's coming from within you is going to just do wonders for you. And that starts with your thoughts, right? Like you were reprogramming your thoughts using like what your sports psychologist was coaching you through. And when we have the right thought, it can set the seed to have a more neutral or positive emotion. Yes, absolutely. Oh, so, so powerful. Okay. So there's people definitely listening right now. They're like, okay, that's cool. But like, here's the problem. I'm scared. Someone's going to look me up on Strava or look me up on the race results and see I ran a horrible time. Or someone's going to see me for the first time in six months and saw that I gained weight and they're going to talk ish about me. Like, how do we like, okay, like people are judgy. People love to compare. That's just part of human nature. How do we deal with that, Elizabeth? Yeah, I, I worried about that and had the same problem with that for years. And, um, and it worked both ways too, because then I would look at other people on Strava and look at their results. And then I would feel um, less about myself, um, somewhat jealous, not in the sense that I like didn't like them for it, but I'd be like, well, so-and-so ran this time, but my time is so much slower and it would just make me feel bad. So I think it works both ways. But to answer your question on how do you, how do you get over what people think about your Strava? Well, for, for me and my running, I have a, a running coach and, um, I do what the coach tells me to do. And so I'm confident in that, in that plan. So whatever anyone else thinks about my Strava or my training, and trust me, with like 70,000 Instagram followers, I get a lot of critique. <laughs> um, and so, but I'm not afraid to put anything out there. I'm not afraid to say, well, it was my easy day and I ran um, a 9.30 pace, which is like on the slower side for me. I'm not afraid to say that. Or um, I didn't PR, I ran a time that was much slower than I hoped. I'm not afraid to put that out there because I'm... I'm really confident in what I'm doing. I'm really confident in the process. So even though there may be people that criticize me um, or judge me, they don't, they don't matter. You can't live your life worrying about what other people think. And that's going back to my Chicago story. I was really worried that I'd have to like post on Facebook. Well, we're in Chicago and it wasn't good, but instead course, I did post on Facebook. That was when Facebook was really hot. And then that 2013 time, I, I did post, I did post on it and um, was, was proud of whatever time that I ran because this was my journey. And I think if you are truly confident and um, if you are confident in your training and what you're doing and you're confident in your journey and you know, you're doing the best thing for you, what other people say or what other people think won't matter because you have that confidence coming from within you. Um, but it's not automatic. You have to work to have that confidence. And do you think the advice we had you had said earlier, like fake it till you make it, do you think that can be applied here where if someone's like, but I do care if somebody sees my time? Like, do you think that fake it till you make it mentality is what's the solution in that situation? 
I do. I think if, if you start feeling like I do care, like I, I, I don't want them to see it and I'm worried about it. You just say, well, logically, rationally, intellectually, they don't matter. And I know I feel like they matter, but they really don't. And chances are that that person is struggling with something themselves because everyone is everyone is struggling and it's so easy to judge. And um, and also the reality that there's just always accept the reality. There's always going to be people judging. And then also the reality. Here's another key thing. There's actually not that many people judging. You may feel like everyone cares about your time, but they really don't. They are more focused on their themselves. So the belief that, oh, if I run a slow time, what are people going to say? Or, oh, if I gain weight, what are people going to think? Most people won't notice. Most people won't care. The ones who do care, do you really want them in your life? So that's definitely something to, to think about. Um, and that was another epiphany for me that like, I just had this belief that everyone on my Facebook page, I didn't have an Instagram back then, was going to really care about my time. But they don't like just get over yourself and people don't care. People really just don't care about your training or your race times that much. And if they care, it might, it's probably more of a reflection on them. And, and that's what goes back to what I said earlier to two way street, because when I see someone else's race results, I, I wouldn't use to judge them, but it would make me feel differently about myself. It could make me feel badly about myself because potentially one of my peers ran a time that, I thought that I should have gotten, but I didn't get that time. So that's another skill is to not compare yourself to other people. And remember that most people are not comparing themselves to you. I love how you keep saying and, and the reason, and the reason I love it is because I think so often we're more in this dark place. It's like, okay, I hear you, Elizabeth, but you know, so-and-so is going to think this. And it's like, okay, we can have space to feel like, sad or upset or disappointed in ourselves or that someone's mean or a jerk. And at the same time, we can take the steps Elizabeth is saying and putting before us, right? Where we can work on our self-talk, work on thinking about, okay, well, rationally, what really matters here is not what some idiot on the internet is saying about me, right? Like we can have room for both experiences. And I, it's like, that's such a simple concept, but at the same time, I know for a lot of my life, that but was so big and so overpowering that it would paralyze me. I'd be like, but somebody's going to say something about me. And it would like stop me from doing the thing that makes me happiest and me feel most fulfilled in my life. Yeah. 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 And, and I, you know, I sort of faced that with a large following, um, getting negative comments. I just ignore them. Um, or delete them because these people don't know me. Um, I don't, you know, they probably have their own issues or whatever for why they're making a negative comment. Um, I used to let that get me down sort of early days, but then I, I really just toughened up and I'm like, this is not worth my time. Just delete, delete, delete. It's not, it's not give, worth giving a second thought. My time is valuable. My mental space is valuable. I'm not going to let this person take away my mental energy from me. And that's empowering them if I do. Yeah. And by like just practicing that, like blocking them out helps you to get to that place where you feel more empowered too. I think it's just, it's so funny to me where somebody like, and I know it like can be uncomfortable to be like the recipient of praise, but it's like you've run four freaking Boston marathons. You wrote a book. You are an awesome runner. You were an awesome like role model on the Instagram with 70,000 followers. It's like, 
who the heck is out there like bashing you? Like, who are these weirdos? You know? Um, and it just, you know, I, I want this to inspire anyone listening where maybe a couple of years ago or longer than that, like you wouldn't have been able to handle that. That would have gotten under your skin. And now here you are like laughing about it. And it's just yeah. like, it's just the power of like working on your self-talk and um, how that fake it till you make it. It, it does work. Yeah. Yeah. And when you when you get a negative comment and once again, I don't want to dwell too much on this because my my main point here is that like ninety nine point nine percent of people actually don't care about your time. They're not analyzing you. They're not scrutinizing you. But there is probably a point one percent who are. Um, But that point one percent can feel like, you know, the 80 percent. So I know I've been there. It can feel like it. Um, I get I've I've gotten um, a few comments on my running form because I have limited ankle mobility. I cannot take very large strides. So when I post a video of myself running, there are these sort of short, choppy uh, strides. Um, I don't have a beautiful, long stride like I see some others run. I just can't. Um, my um, my ankles won't let me do that. So um, I've just gotten used to people saying that. But I'm like, look, I'm very confident in how I run. This is my body. This is what I've been given. It's allowed me to run however many marathons I've done, it keeps me injury free. I don't get injured very often. And this is what works for me. And I know it works for me. So whatever anyone has to say about it, it's just revealing their insecurity. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I love it. I love it. Okay, Elizabeth. So before we um, kind of finish up here, I have one final question that I ask all my guests. Why do you love your body? I love my body because it enables me to do what I love and what I love is move. Specifically, I love to run, but it's not just running. I was a dancer growing up and I absolutely loved that. Um, I like to go for walks. I like to travel. I like to explore by foot. Um, I like to do strength training. I love swimming. So I've just always been a very, very active person and my body has allowed me to do what I love to do and that is move. Ugh, I love it. Yes. Experiencing life in its fullest capacity. That is ugh, the best, best reason to love your body. Um, so Elizabeth, please share with everyone who's listening. They want to follow you. They want to learn more about you. Tell us how we can do so. Sure. So my Instagram handle is at Elizabeth Clore. That is C-L-O-R. And I also have a blog at www.elizabethclore.com. And if you're interested in my book, you can go on Amazon and find it, uh, Boston Bound, uh, with my name as the author. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Dear RunnerBot. If you enjoyed what you heard, remember to subscribe and make sure you share today's episode. Also, if you're looking to download a free three-step guide to love your runner's bod, then head to serenamarierd.com. Can't wait to chat with you next week.